Good afternoon and welcome to the Sitka Nature Show. This is your host, Matt. I want to thank you for joining me here in the first weekend of November 2021. The last couple of days, trumpeter swans have started to arrive here in Sitka. They are the last of the regularly wintering resident species uh, that I expect to see here in Sitka. So it's beginning to feel a little bit like the beginning of winter to me. One of the highlights of this past week was an opportunity to see a very active and extensive Northern Lights show on Wednesday night into Thursday morning. It's the most activity and the greatest extent that I've seen in probably since about 2004 or so. I was really appreciating that opportunity and hopefully there will be some more in the coming months and years as the solar activity levels increase as the sun approaches the next solar maximum. The conversation I have for this week's show is one that I recorded and originally aired back in fall of 2019. I spoke with Jackie Hildering, also known as the Marine Detective on Facebook and other social media. And she was here for as the keynote speaker for Whale Fest that year. This weekend is Whale Fest here in Sitka, so I thought it'd be fun to pull this one out of the archives. We'll go ahead and start with her explaining a little bit of how she came to do what she does. More broadly, it's mm-hmm. always been about... Uh, nature generally and connection to the environment. The layer that came on top of that was teaching and it all came together when I moved back. All right. So you were teaching in Europe and then uh, moved back to Canada to be a biologist (laughs) or a teacher? Uh, Yeah, good question. Um, So what happened was because of career, um, and that would be in big air quotes, Mm -hmm. I ended up as the deputy head of the International School of Rotterdam in the Netherlands. And I went back home to British Columbia uh, on a holiday, and friends took me out on a whale-watching trip on northeastern Vancouver Island, fairly remote, um, as a surprise. And it was one of those moments in life where suddenly you realize, whoa, what am I doing? I've drifted off course. I'm living in a big city, talking about nature as if it were somewhere else. I don't want to do this. So I jumped. I left the career I moved back to British Columbia. I moved to exactly the place that I'd gone on that whale-watching trip. And then this very unique niche opened up to me as a bossy, loud, teacher-type person um, who was ravenous to be learning from nature. And so there is one place on the planet where I know individual fish up to individual whales. And the pieces that came together in that, so I was 36 at the time, this is 20 years ago, I'm clearly 56 now, um, is that uh, initially it was about making the experience or striving to make the experience of seeing orca count for the sake of conservation. And there's some pretty powerful messaging there about our having shot at them, thought there were thousands of damn blackfish. They all ate salmon, there's too many, um, to realizing that there are four different populations off the coast of British Columbia. They don't mate with one another. They're all at risk. And it's a story of how wrong we can be and how quickly we can change when knowledge replaces fear. So that's what I was doing. And then I became a diver as well at late age, 36, then found out the power of underwater photography because people generally were interested in the big things they could pull out of the ocean and the big things that they, the big beings that they saw at the surface, but had little understanding of the kind of ecosystem you need to sustain giants. And that's where I still believe I do the most valuable work is to show the life right under the surface. And that's where my my uh, handle, the marine detective, comes from, which I hope suggests the right humility. I'm trying to find things out. 
and then as the teacher type I am that I wanted to count for the big picture stuff. But while doing that, <laughs> then the humpback started coming back to northeastern Vancouver Island. And it's not acceptable to look at a whale in my world and just go, oh, look, it's a humpback. <laughs> Who are they? Are they coming back? What are they telling us about feed and climate and all the things? And so that got me in really deep where I'm a co-founder of a nonprofit, and we now have the coastwide responsibility in British Columbia to try to educate people about how to avoid collision because it's a game changer. Uh, you here know about humpbacks and how unpredictable they can be. They were absent off the coast of British Columbia for a really long time and now have come back in astounding numbers. And we even have somebody who is paralyzed from the waist down from a collision mm. with, with a humpback whale. And we're also trying to educate around what to do and what not to do in case of entanglement and to go against all the romantic stuff on social media. The whale knew I was trying to save it. I jumped in the water. Uh, it breached thanking me, which is very, very different from reality. And I have firsthand knowledge of knowing that whales think I'm a jerk um, for <laughs> trying to be of use to them. So, yeah, that's, that, that is why the handle exists, because at some point it became really difficult to explain what I was doing. Uh, but it's learning from nature and knowing one little piece of our beautiful coast really, really well from individual fish up to individual whales, and to try to make that count for the sake of the health of our own future generations. Not everybody, I guess, has has a childhood nature connection sort of yeah. exper experience uh, in a way that, that sort of compels them later in life. And so I was just curious if there's something for you that sort of really resonated that, you know, when you were in Rotterdam and, and doing that and you come back and you're like, wait a minute, you know, this isn't, this isn't the life that I, you know, might have dreamed I think, of. I think most folks in Alaska would understand it, that they wouldn't do well in an urban center. Um, and I think that most people in urban centers realize it. Uh, and if not, it might be reflected in the health of, of their day-to-day -day life. We need to be in nature. I was fortunate enough to know what it felt like as a child, indeed, to be in big open spaces that felt safe and where I was learning from the world around me. And something that, and, and, and it is really, really good that it was the Netherlands that I was in as a small, uh, highly urbanized country with really strong political voice at that time and world orientation. Like what I learned of politics, I am thankful to the Netherlands for, like, use your voice, make it count, be empowered. But it took being in such a small country where everything is smaller, from refrigerators to the size of the average car, uh, personal space, everything, to to really then come back and go, oh my God, I can breathe more. And And then also in those kinds of urban settings, you get the delusion that you're in control and at the risk of sounding spiritual as a scientist, but... I love the sense of humility that comes with being somebody who's actually in the field, either learning from the whales at the surface or from what's below the surface as a diver. That leaves me in a state of awe. It leaves me in a state of appropriate humility about how little we know and not to have the delusion that we are somehow terribly in control and that is what I really missed. And it took, indeed, knowing, having 
No, I don't know. I don't know if I would have had to have grown up in British Columbia in the wild to still have come to the same conclusion. And I think that we know that as well, because I'm willing to bet the streets are crawling with Europeans up here in the summer. <laughs> well, there are a lot of people that like to come visit. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's an interesting. It's an interesting thing. People come up to see see the wilderness. There certainly is. Uh, you, you know, you mentioned that in Rotterdam, this feeling like you were teaching about nature as though it were someplace out there. Yeah. Um, and that that challenge that people have. I, I work with an organization that that tries to help connect people to nature. And one of the big challenges is people are like, I can't connect to nature in the city because there's no nature here. That's not really true. No. But uh, but it is the feeling that so many people have. It it is in in town planning in many places up to now. Mm-hmm. But as we awaken to a world of realizing that even the smell of the forest can uh, have physiological changes, hence uh, forest bathing and whatnot, that'll reflect in changes in the way that cities are built and that people design their own lives as well. And I do have to say that I it is absolutely the case, I think, that it took my leaving our coast and coming back to be able to see it with the eyes of someone from away. Mm-hmm. And and to therefore, like I often use the, the phrase that how problematic it is if the keepers of paradise don't know they're in it. Uh, So I live in a resource user uh, community. I'm very glad of that. I'm also the child. uh, I was, I was raised on pulp mill dollars, which I'm also very glad of because it doesn't make me uh, naive and as easy to slot into the label of environmentalist, whatever that means, because I'm pretty sure we all need the environment. Um, But it, I was able to, to know the value of just the sense of space even. Like to be able to stand on the shoreline like out here at, at Sitka. If you've always seen this and, and always have breathed in the the ocean air, you may not know what you're missing until you're taken away from it and then suddenly the smell hits you, for example, or the fuescape, the sense of space, the sense of quiet. And and again, the Netherlands was such a good contrast for that and was so essential to me having the realizations that I do, where even to be truly somewhere, certainly in the more urbanized half of the Netherlands, where you can be in quiet. And I think a lot of us on our coast don't realize how valuable that commodity is, for lack of a better word. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, up here, I mean, it, I, I imagine I mean, there's, there's places that are more and less developed, I suppose, in BC, uh, you know, flying, flying south, you know, you get to Vancouver and Victoria, they're kind of big cities. And then Indeed. you get a bit north of that. And it's pretty, pretty sparse in terms of, uh, you know, the occasional roads and, and whatever. But um, it is, uh, yeah, there's, it's, it's not that hard to get away from people here. Yeah. Uh, and so it is easy to I mean, I try to remember that, basically, you know, I I did spend time going to college and, and spent some time in the cities, but I don't, yeah, it, it's important, I, you know, I think you're saying there to, to understand that there's, there's something here, and if you take it for granted too much, it, it can be easy to let it go. Indeed, and then, keepers of paradise not knowing they're in paradise, because it's, it's so, so commonplace, and I, I can no way speak for anything here, but certainly in my backyard, that 
that can potentially lead to the whoring out of resources. I'm not against uh, resource use in any way. <laughs> don't know how we would do without. But indeed, where you you sell out something because you don't realize how extraordinary it is, and that you have a demographic outside of our our First Nations, our people whose culture goes back for thousands of years, um, and is what it is because of their connection to the area, that if there is this short-term economy perspective, like we, we in British Columbia, we're gold rushers. I suspect you aren't so very different up here. But it is, what is the next resource and how quickly can we use it? And that's not going to serve our own great-grandchildren well, uh, let alone uh, other species on the planet. Yeah, yeah, there's definitely um, histories of, of uh, what I guess the boom and the bust cycle they talk about for the different resources and so forth. And uh, it seems, I mean, that, that's not really my area at all. So my, my impression is, though, that there's lots of people, at least in, in the area that I'm aware of, that are kind of wary of that approach. And one of the things I appreciated growing up was a lot of the times, you know, the pulp mills were running and, and there was a lot of good economics for that in terms of people making a living. But uh, you know, the folks that were, were challenging that way of doing things weren't doing so, like sometimes you hear people say, well, you know, humans don't belong in, out there, you know, we should take ourselves out of it completely and let it be itself. Yeah, and and the, what I was hearing here, the message that I got that resonated with me was that, no, actually, we use that, we need to take care of that and, and you know, use the best tools to, but we're making a living essentially a livelihood uh you know we're eating we're we're harvesting firewood you know all these things that we're doing to to uh live here like those are coming from there and if you destroy that then we can't do that anymore we can't live here anymore and that was really where the motivation seemed to be coming from far more than uh humans are bad (laughs) which is sometimes the vibe that i get uh it it is it is so much that that and i don't know that i can articulate it well i get um I get frustrated by the inclination of people, in social, and certainly in the world of social media, to to put out there the kind of statements that make us sound like humans are some sort of sludge. You know, we're destroying the planet, it's all hopeless anyway. You just totally abdicated responsibility. Yeah, great. So you are now deciding that you're not doing anything. You probably have children and grandchildren, yeah, or the hope thereof. What the hell like this is, we have no option rather than being human. I personally am trying to turn into a sea lion as a diver, but not very successful. Actually, some parts of that hairiness and blubber layer, I'm well on my way. But but really, like, and, and, and of course, doing the work that I do, and I don't know at this point of, in, my converse, in our conversation, whether it's come across enough, I am an educator. I am an environmental educator. It has taken many, many different shapes. Um I fill myself up by learning from the environment. It gives me more credibility. It gives me the the passion that probably comes across in my voice uh, now. Uh, for for goodness sakes, you've got to do something. You can't. I'm in the trenches learning not only about the marine life, and I focus on the ocean because that's usually where environmental problems which are social problems, end up manifesting themselves first. It is the life-sustaining force on the planet. Even that, very many people don't realize. But I'm in the trenches also learning about human psychology. I have to, if I'm trying to be successful. And that kind of thing, like, 
abdicating responsibility to, well, it's all hopeless anyway. Um, there's too many people. You know, well, what are we going to do there then? Yeah, if there's a list of people we need to get rid of, yeah, I'd like, I have some names for that list. That's not going to work. Short of allowing for gender equality on the planet so that there are uh, more, there's more freedom of choice with regards to how many children there are on the planet. We got to do stuff. And, and in this, in trying to dig through the psychology, why do people turn off? Why do they try to abdicate responsibility? Why is it more comfortable to point at something else like it's those damn seals and sea lions, not us that are impacting the salmon runs, that sort of thing. And I've come to understand, I believe that part of that at least is where all all these social and environmental issues are presented even by those working for the environment as competing interests or disparate problems. They're not. They're all symptoms of the same disease. And therefore, they have the same cures. They have the same solutions. And another problem within that is that as soon as we start talking about using less, reducing, I have come to understand that people associate that with loss rather than about gain. And if those two things could change... I believe that, that, and I've got a few other elements that I really believe in, but truly, if we understood that there were common solutions for social environmental problems, and hence the level of empowerment that we have as voters and consumers, and that we realized that using less fossil fuels, not needing to be perfect, but less fossil fuels, less disposables, less dangerous chemicals, that that is about gain, rather than about loss, I think we'd, we'd be winning. Yeah, you know, one of the things that you mentioned earlier that, that for me ties into what you're saying now is that you're getting to know the individual fish and, you know, from fish to whales. And one of the, um, one of the folks that I work with uh, really invites people to, um, you know, uh, learn the birds in their neighborhood, and in particular, the bird in your yard, you know, because yeah. a lot of times we just are like, oh, it's just birds, it's right? It's a and bird. A yeah. bird. And yeah. we don't realize that actually, no, there's a bird there in your yard that probably uses your yard more than you do um, and is, has its own concerns about the neighborhood cats or, you know, the raptors or, or whatever, and its own little quirks of personality and those those sorts of things in there. It's, it's, it's unique behaviors. And you can get to know that bird, and that bird will get to know you. Um, if you just spend some time watching. And that relationship there, you know, um, he, he's, in inviting people to do this and helping them on that journey, he's he's observed people's shift that yeah. happens because now they have a connection, they have a relationship, and it's meaningful to them in a way that uh, these abstractions of nature as kind of out there and apart from us. Um, but the bird's telling you about you, you know, how you come out the door in the morning, like the bird responds to that. And if you start paying attention, you know, if you're in your own head and just kind of like tromping off to work, like that bird will fly away because you're putting out this kind of vibe that is scary. Um, whereas if you kind of open the door and step and pause and observe, you know, and watch, the, the bird will kind of stay in this kind of baseline normal behavior and that there's this uh, reflective process. And I imagine it's similar for fish. Most of us don't spend that much time <laughs> down in the water. So it's hard to develop that sort of a relationship with, with individual fish, perhaps. But, but that, that they're responding to how you are, like how you are in the water, I would imagine. Like if you're acting more predatory, they probably are less likely to be calm and collected I think around so, you. Yeah. 
Yeah. I, by the way, that would have, I've got a whole lot I can go home with there. Uh, I think I've been so marine-oriented yeah. <laughs> indeed. What a brilliant approach because it's there for everybody, urban center to, uh, to remote life. I'm trying to wrap words around the psychology of what's happening there because you are, and I like very much too that you speak of inviting people to, but yeah, there's there's the connection with the individual. It's, it doesn't become the anonymous bird. It's an ind- individual bird. It, it embedded within all of that is the sense of the importance of that place and and your activities and what you offer and having a shrub that gives them the habitat that a well-groomed shrub, like all of that, it's, it's, it's amazing, isn't it? Because not so long ago, we, our survival depended on being that connected to our environment, where now we have to be invited back. Um, so, so my mind sir, is thinking very much about that and how I, that is something that, can be of use to people in a much easier way than what I'm striving for, because the layers that get added to that with individual fishes and nudibranchs, and the list goes on and on, is that most people don't even know they exist. Mm -hmm. And to actually get it to a level of an individual fish is in some cases what I might be successful in with some people, it's so much of it, though, is I, I think my most successful photographs are where you can still see the surface. You can see the sun coming through the ocean water. It's at a boat ramp, and you've got this extraordinary creature that is right below the surface that most people have no idea exists. And then I feel like once I get the sense from people or the words even, that's here, then then I can be of use in, yeah, that's that's here. And that whatever that is in terms of access and importance to people about learning, having a sense of how little we know, again, needing the appropriate humility. Like if you don't know what's already hidden right under the surface, that might extrapolate to a sense of greater precaution generally about how we manage the life-sustaining force on the planet. But also so importantly and back to the birds in the yard, that connection, like understanding there is no divide between land and sea. So if it's already requires an invitation for people to get connected to the birds in their yard, uh, it is a delightful challenge. (laughs) It is a delightful challenge to invite people to look under, right under the surface even, of the life-sustaining force on the planet, you know, where 50% of our oxygen's coming from, if you even live in the middle of a desert, carbon dioxide buffering, thanks to the plant-like um, plankton and the kelp, and the list goes on and on, food, habitat, yeah, um, weather uh, determining. And yet, there's this notion of divide, and it gets amplified because our water is dark because it's so full of plankton, we're by, I'm not saying it's the case for Sitka, Alaska, but certainly where I come from, yeah, there is a bias to thinking it's way better down in Hawaii or Mexico because I can see through the water and see the fishes. Let's have a little think about that. If you can see through the water, there is little to no plankton. 
and, and then having the privilege of, <laughs> to my own amazement, being a whale researcher, it so reveals itself with humpbacks because people will, and again, it's really sudden to the coast of British Columbia that humpbacks have come back in the numbers that they have within the last decade. But people ask me so frequently, why are they here? It's like, yo, that is completely the wrong question. You need to be asking why they leave. They're here because they're feeding. And and that is so limiting. In Very often people then think the whales are in transit, which is already a really practical problem with things like avoiding collision. If you think, if you don't realize you've got the same individual whales coming back to the same place, yeah, because they're not all feeding in the same way. And they're like any good fisherman or fisherwoman, they have preferences yeah, at certain times of the year in certain places. At any rate, that bias to it's better somewhere else that is even revealed that people think, well, the whales have clearly made a mistake. They should be in Hawaii <laughs> or Mexico is, is, yeah, a frustration, but also makes clear the necessity of trying to be of use. Yeah, I think, you know, the folks that I know here, I, I can't speak for everybody, but I certainly know a number of people that like to dive or snorkel. And so, you know, certainly there is a preference for that in the winter season. It's colder, but you can see a lot more, yeah. which which has its advantages for, like, the amazing diversity. I mean, my brother uh, and I both grew up here, but we never, like, we'd go out on the boat or whatever, but we never did anything underwater. We swam at the beach just as kids, you know, but uh, when he was, he was back one summer, I don't know, it's been a few years now and uh, somebody invited him to go snorkeling. And so he went snorkeling and he just like his description of that, he says, I got down there and it was like this whole world opened up, yeah. you know, when we go down to the beach at low tide, I mean, there's amazing stuff there, but it's all kind of hunkered down and like plastered against the rocks and under the seaweed and, and underneath it's the rocks. It's a crisis mode. Yeah, yeah. Right. It's yeah. basically just hanging out, waiting for hoping to survive yeah. until, until the water comes back. He says, but everything's up and moving and the seaweed's moving around, the eelgrass. And he said, he said, it just felt like this immersive, expansive, huge space. And then I bumped my knee on the bottom, you know, and oh, that was, wow. it was like, he was just so shallow that even in, in. And that's your brother who grew up who here. Who grew up here. Yeah, but you exactly. just don't like, that's a different experience of the water. You know, you kind of need tools to, to, you, you can do it without a wetsuit, but it gets pretty cold pretty quick for most of us. And, and certainly you need the, the mask, you know, so you can see yeah. to get that experience. But when he described it that way, he says it was amazing. And, and that was just snorkeling, you know, and then speaking to people who dive like yourself and, and get deeper and able to have different perspectives and be down there longer. Um, I don't and, know if that deeper, to be honest, I don't know if the deeper, um, the the imagery that I'm able to bring up from deeper is any more powerful than the surface stuff. I think that the this, this surface stuff, what, what mm-hmm. is right there, it, for reasons I I hope have already come across, that that ends up being more powerful because it's, wait, what? That's in like three feet of water? That's in three feet of water. And I, and I certainly get that sense of expansiveness. What some people might be able to achieve with meditation, I can't. But when I drop into the water, I, I'm gone. I can check out uh, for, yeah, for however long, an hour, uh, and, and come up feeling like I have escaped my head for, for quite a while. And thank goodness within all that, too, for digital photography, because there's nothing more powerful than people 
people speaking for showing their own backyard to their own neighbors. So in the world of social media, taking images underwater and delivering that as locally as possible, uh, that, I think, is so much more powerful than some fancy photo uh, taken by a professional photographer who may come here to visit, for example. Yeah. Well, so I, you know, you mentioned that, and I know I've I've seen you on Facebook as the Marine Detective, and you have Find the Fish Friday, which is a fun little um, challenging in some cases. <laughs> sometimes it's not too hard, but sometimes those guys are, I guess, they're in the business of not being seen. Um, yes. So, so they they're pretty effective at that. Are you? Uh, I, and I think you have a website that's just Marine Detective. Yes, yeah. So I've okay. got two hats on as I right. sit here. Um, one is the underwater uh, world. Um, is as the marine detective, indeed. And then I also am the co-founder of the Marine Education and Research Society, and the whale research and needs for education around that is under that handle. All right. So folks can can uh, see see your photography on, I don't know if you're on other, maybe it's just your website for the, for the photography with um, like the underwater photography. Uh, I'm all over social yeah. media, <laughs> trying right. hard. Yeah. So Instagram and uh, Facebook okay, are both the Marine well. Detective and all then right. Instagram and Facebook as well for Marine Education and Research Society. All right. So if folks want a, a, a Marine version of Where's Waldo, so to speak, yes. uh, uh, find the... Do it with children. Friday. Yes. Yeah. My daughter, my, my kids enjoyed, I, I did that with them. Sometimes I'd show them, I said, can you find seven fish on here? Or how many fish can you find? Or, you know, sometimes. And it's it's kind of amazing. Uh, they, yeah, it's just, it's hard to find them sometimes. Uh, I don't know how you see so them. kids are so much better yeah. at it. It's it's <laughs> remarkable. Yeah. And I've got to get on the second Find the Fish book. It's, it's uh, a... <laughs> A short story of what motivates me. A little girl went through the first book for Find the Fish, and yes, they are also online every Friday. Um, And she, first of all, told me that it was too easy. Fine, uh, (laughs) very much. You are my employer's children. I will take this under review. But it's like, you need to do another one. And this was two years ago. Yeah. And she must have seen the look of abject horror on my face of how I was going to score another book within a short period of time. And then she said, it's okay. You can do it tomorrow. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, kids have a different sense of time, I guess. Are you seeing those? When when you're in the water, yeah. I mean, are they easier to see when you're in the water? There, the, the there's there's a combination of things going on, and it's often that one moves, mm-hmm. and and then as I learn, I also know where they're more likely to be or or what to be alert for. Uh, but but often it'll be I might see one or two move, and then I take the photo, and yeah. there's seven of them, <laughs> and it only makes me and it, yeah. I'm essentially an eight-year-old in a 56-year-old's body, and I get to, with this, have the fun myself. But, but I'm sure what's clear with, the, with these find-the-fish uh, exercises is I want to put imagery into the world of our ocean, of the Northeast Pacific Ocean. I don't want to eradicate Finding Nemo, but I would like for children, it is like with so many things, that certainly in our area, children know more about kangaroos than they do about the orca that swim right outside their their island. And with Find the Fish, when they think of the ocean outside their doorstep, I want them to 
have an image of what that looks like. And I think even for many adult listeners, if they try to envision what the ocean looks like, the ocean bottom looks like along Sitka shores, it might be difficult to come up with an image because so much of what we're presented is tropical imagery. Mm. Yeah, the coral reefs and the, and the things around. Yeah, them and, and women thing, in yeah. bikinis and that kind of mm-hmm. thing. <laughs> it's way easier. Like it's a, it's a, it's you always have good visibility mm-hmm. most often in warm water. It's more comfortable. Yeah, it's perceived to be more exotic. Uh, where no, we need to know about about our neighbors and how astounding they are. Yeah. Yeah, no, that makes sense to me. And I, the, the, um, yeah, the find the fish thing there where it seems like a nice, nice sort of avenue for that. To, Cause you, you do spend time looking. I don't know. Like I've, I've the last however many years since I first started taking pictures of plants basically in the 90s. Uh, and that's kind of what opened the door for me. I was like, oh, I want to know what this is. And it wasn't yeah. enough for me to just kind of, it's a yellow flower on a mountain. I wanted to know the name and then, that triggered some obsession or something because now I'm like, that's what I do. And, but so much has been, I've taken a picture of stuff. I try to figure out what it is and I can't tell you how many times I've taken a picture of something and then discovered in the picture something I didn't realize was there at the time. And it's like, it's not, I mean, sometimes they're small things, but a lot of times they're things I should have noticed, but I I think I should have noticed. I could have noticed certainly, uh, but didn't. And I'd imagine, you know, just even what I've, I haven't spent as much time in, because uh, I'm not a diver and I've only done a very little bit of snorkeling uh, and spent some time at kind of tide pooling and, and low tide stuff. But it is dense uh, in the intertidal zone yeah. and probably just below that, you know, in that light, light zone where there's a lot of light there and so a lot of productivity. And there's a lot of stuff. Uh, and at depth too. Like anywhere that you've got the current mm. you've got the distribution of nutrients there's no no limiting factor like with mm. light because right. then what what is produced the the phytoplankton at the surface the plant like plankton that's getting distributed through through the depths so you've got like that's that's in i haven't done a lot of warm water diving uh but it's one of the the things that i found the most surprising was there's areas of rock exposed and in the high current areas that I dive on our coast, there is nothing that is not covered in high current areas. Mm-hmm. I have to say it's very different, of course, when you get to sand or, or in areas that don't get the distribution of, of uh, nutrients. But how brilliant, too, like with your, with your kids, I think that is so essential as well as they're, they're owning their own knowledge. And in, certainly in so many urban centers, but e- even again in in our school system, even in a remote area where I live in British Columbia, it's so assessment driven that the easy ways are chosen so that something can be regurgitated on a test. And something I see, and thank goodness for things like outdoor kindergartens and that there's a move back to learning from nature, what you're removing, one of the many things from children if they are just learning from somebody telling them something they're not owning their own knowledge that they there is a reduction in deductive reasoning in the upbringings that it sounds like we were so lucky to have is let being let loose to own your own knowledge to what is this fish what does the fish do if i do this there's a shadow it moves away yeah or i found this little I found this little mite and my dad didn't even know what it is. 
I showed my dad. Yeah, he had to figure it out. I'm the one who found it. Owning owning your own knowledge and being able to deduce things and feel your place within nature, I didn't think that would ever become something that would be limited in its access to children, but we're there. Yeah. Well, you know, one thing that I is coming up as you're as you're sharing about this is just the um you know, the power of being able to tell stories about that. You know, you go out and you have your experience and have somebody that and that seems to be a lack for a lot of people is like who do you who do you tell? And and part of the reason I actually started this show was simply that I, I know around Sitka there's a lot of people that get out and they see stuff and they might be interested in it, but they don't know who cares. So they just like it just kind of fades and there's no kind of no no person there. So I wanted to be the person that people told about stuff. Wonderful. And, and because I'm really interested in what's out there and I can't see it all. Yeah. Uh, and so for me, part of that is, is like there, there is, uh, you know, we're storytelling and, and catching creatures. You know, we, we love to hear stories. We love to, to tell stories and our experience of, of going out and having this experience coming back and telling the story is like, it's a powerful one. It seems like, and, and, you know, all the better if the person that's catching the story also asks us good questions that might tug on some of those edges that, you know, for me, in a way, taking pictures and bringing it back and then looking at it, it was me sort of telling myself the story. Like I took the yeah. picture and I come back and I look and then I see these things and I'm like, why didn't I see that before? And so it triggers me the next time I go out to pay attention in a little different way. And Down so, the rabbit hole. Yeah. Never <laughs> it, gets, it, it gets, you can get a little obsessed with this. Uh, it, it's a big world out there, it turns out, even in a small area. So, yeah. and, and there's a positive force within all of this outside of the show and people being able to share their stories is thank goodness that we even have the jargon for citizen science. Mm. Like the, that loftiness, that divide or whatever it was that created the divide. So the people who are actually living take take sea star wasting syndrome for example there's no way that scientists can monitor the breadth of the outbreak from alaska to the border of mexico it has to be that we all deliver puzzle pieces to sorry not that there is no obligation of having to but how there is the understanding of the breadth and impact and regional differences is because you i the various puzzle pieces we hold for the areas we know, we know the changes. We know the way that it used to be. And there's no way that that um, institutionalized science can ever have access to that. And, and, and uh, this isn't intended as a plug. It's just meant as respect. But like what, uh, what Karen Johnson does right. with the Facebook page, there's a whole gang of people who basically have the curiosity of an eight-year-old. Yeah, and where you can get that bundling of citizen science there's there's the a, a community building of people sharing with one another one of the really positive steps forward too that a, a, a positive side of facebook right. rather than the uh not learning stuff <laughs> right. and other than what somebody's having for dinner yeah yeah it is it is those things like that i've, I've really enjoyed i don't really contribute to that much because my specialty isn't marine stuff uh but i enjoy seeing what's going through there all the different like there's no end of wild creatures in the ocean it turns out and uh that that most of oh, us don't get to see and we know so little mm. we know so little and then you get um from what i've indeed from from afar s- seen as well with with that facebook group 
is you get the people talking to one another who should be talking with one another. Somebody may, and not because they're a scientist, but may have a pocket of expertise that is able to identify something or give it context. And But you do get policymakers and scientists and the people who are actually on the water the most often, the fishermen and fisherwomen, communicating with one another and maybe not realizing it but the 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 commonality is the interest and and passion for uh for nature yeah yeah you know people are so inherently social and and that in in the modern world of television and all those things which tend to isolate us from each other yeah. in in some ways you know we come to talk around the television shows but but there's a lot of us that are interested in and, and probably a lot more than most of us realize because we get we get obsessed in our little little niche and 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 when we try to tell people about it they're like boy you're weird <laughs> you know why are you so why are you so obsessed about these obscure little things um and so we just end up with this feeling that nobody cares yeah. But there's a lot of people out there that are interested in their own thing and they're curious about your thing and and that that, that ability to interact really it strengthens all of our interests because I know from my own experience when I have a chance to when I go see something I have a chance I know somebody's going to be interested in it I'm a lot more likely to pay more attention bring that back and if they're excited about it then I'm a lot more likely to look for that in the future like there's this positive oh, yeah. reinforcement I get, that's I get that one yeah yeah and it and it doesn't help when things get scienced mm-hmm. that I, and again the the whole notion of of citizen science or uh, removing the what is it? The the branding around science as being something uh, lofty or distant or academic or no, science is happening all the time. Uh, science is something that we all are contributing to. But I do worry that that indeed, if that people might be shy to ask, well, or or maybe that's even the mindset. I. I don't know what this is. Probably everybody else does, so I'm not going to say anything. And then the knowledge gets blocked rather than, no, please ask what that is, because anemones do look really weird at low tide, yeah. <laughs> and that it's really hard to know they are. And then you, um, the army of knowledge starts building, like the, that people then have their entryway that you like spoke of as well, and then you start getting people more and more vigilant in tune, whatever the right way of expressing it is, with their own environment. Yeah, it's, you know, the way I like to describe my own kind of journey with it is I started by taking pictures of flowers, basically, because I had a camera that could take pictures of flowers and whatever got me started there. And so I just took pictures of flowers. I naively thought that botanists at a school, you know, I didn't yeah. understand that botanist isn't the same as field botanists <laughs> who would know. And so I would ask them all, what are these pictures? And they were very gracious with me, but basically said, I don't know. That's not really what I do. You know, I study this particular plant. Um, and so uh, that was sort of a learning process for me. And then over time, I just kind of figured out, you know, na- put names and stuff. And sometimes I was wrong and sometimes I was right and gradually refined. But I noticed what started to happen over time is that um, basically, I built on by saying that looks different. I'm yeah, going to take exactly. a picture of it. That exactly. looks different, and you just kind of exactly. glom on that way. And, yeah, uh, the, the first time I ever rolled into the water, and I, and I thankfully I journaled this. It was just like. Screaming 
screaming stimuli in my head, like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, I'm going deeper, I'm going deeper. I know how this works. I'm going to end up getting pushed even deeper. Ooh, look, it's a sea star. <laughs> like it's, in the beginning, it's, it's just sensory overload. But I had, and same deal, like somebody gave me an underwater camera mm. and I, re I resisted it. Because it's like, there is no way I'm already taking way too many pictures on the, the surface. This is going to, I don't want to take that technology other than how to breathe underwater. I don't want to do this. But then I noticed the power of what that meant. I was still very much teaching in schools at that time. And that I was able to say to kids, that's here. And that I would see what kind of wave that, that created in kids going, wait, what? That's here? Yeah, right out there. And I could point to where. So that was part of it. But it was also, it allowed me, I had the aim of, uh, and I'm a super nerd, so this might sound ambitious, but that I would learn at least six species per dive. Oh, wow. Yeah. And, uh, and the only way, because I do not have a... a a photographic memory at all is I have to take the photograph. And then indeed that wonderful kindness uh, that I hope I'm able to like now feed back to, to, to other people is the kindness of the experts. And Oh God, here she comes again. Yeah. This is the most <laughs> common species ever. How do you not know this? But then I get better armed, better armed, better armed. And then I am the one in my little piece of the, the planet that is able to say, this is different. This doesn't belong here. And just within like the, the month uh, before my being here, is there two invasive species that indeed mm. are not supposed to be there? And I dare say nobody else, and, and I hope to goodness I have not come across with arrogance so people can place this properly, nobody else would have noticed that because nobody dies in our area as often as I do. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's an interesting, um, you know, for me, I'm mostly looking for new stuff, uh, but I would notice different stuff, a uh, new to me, I guess I should say, like, because they're, you know, spotty, unusual plants or, or whatever, but there are definitely things that can move in. Um, and, and I'm not, I, I know that there's... Uh, Marine invasives are like people are monitoring. Yeah, or just or just habitat and, shifts, or mm -hmm. just unknowns. Like it, it's remarkable. There's one. There's one worm species that is like a shag rug carpet for those mm. of us old enough to remember what shag rug carpets are. Uh, so, within it's already like five feet of water right in front of our town, and it is it is as expansive as a carpet, and no one has stopped to ask what the heck is that before. And it's now at the stage of either indeed being, it's likely that it's an invasive and it's important then to know that it's mm -hmm. there and reflect on why it's there, but it may be a completely previously undocumented species in five feet of water. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, that's how little we know about our ocean. Like the, a lot of people know like the really powerful uh, quotes, like we know more about the moon than we do about the ocean or 95% of the ocean has been unseen by human eyes. And I got, it's like, no, it's actually way more remarkable than that is just as a recreational diver with an eye for detail there are there are species that people have presumed are the same as as like and, and it is that that cumulative knowledge where mm -hmm. wait a sec that anemone that looks just a little different it looks like that one and it's not just an individual variation because there's another one like it yep new species yeah previously un. Uh, the non non species name applied to it, right? 
Yeah, it is. It is kind of a fascinating thing, and one of the things I don't know if you're if you use iNaturalist at all, yes. but uh, I love about iNaturalist is I am like I am obsessed with my place and everything in my place. But you get outside of my place, and my like I just am not that interested. I mean, sort of yeah. interested, but I'm really focused geographically, but not at all taxonomically. So anything yeah, anything gotcha. here is kind of. I'm interested in. And so I look at stuff from basically Haida Gwaii to the Aleutians. And if it's outside of Southeast Alaska and I don't know what it is, I just skip it. But there's so much overlap to stuff that I do know I'll put IDs on. But then it's great that there's people. Uh, Leslie Harris is an example. I don't know if you've met her, but she's in town this week. And she's a polychaete expert that's based out of uh, Southern California. And she will come along and put IDs and names on on the polychaetes and the worms. And so... Um, so it's been great to interface with experts in a particular, like really, I mean, polychaetes are still amazingly diverse, but it relatively and still speaking, so much yeah, not known as. Uh, ex- yeah, yeah. And that's what she's saying is like, she, I was talking to her the other day. She was, she was uh, telling me that, yeah, there's a lot of polychaetes that are thought to occur from, you know, if you look at the books, the literature from Chile to, you know, Alaska, and that's probably not true. <laughs> you know, in yeah. most cases, there are probably multiple species that have all just been kind of lumped because there hasn't been a careful look made. Yeah, ex- so, exactly that. Like, th- there's a, um, I think they come up as far as up here as well. So, in, in, a, a particularly beautiful sea slug, the op- mm-hmm. uh, and I'm even using the wrong. A common name now, which proves the point: the the um, uh, the opalescent nudibranch, mm-hmm. and it's been recategorized into being three species. So, same deal is that there just hasn't been that kind of attention to to detail, and that's what's something that's 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 in shallow water. That is, and you look at it like, it, yeah, these are actually really really different. Um, where. The, the great respect for Leslie's work is she's dealing with worms. Right. And there's not a lot of people walking around going, yo, is this worm really different from that worm? In <laughs> fact, I bet you she wishes that she had a dollar for every time somebody has asked her, what is this? And what it is, is like a giant pile worm coming to the surface mm. to uh, to burst open and release its sex cells on a full moon. Yeah. Because I get that. Like, I wish I had a dollar for every time I'd been able to identify what I believe to be that species of marine worm. Yeah, it was, uh, she showed me some of the videos she had of, of that, that divers, actually, um, uh, who, who have uh, become very good at und- underwater videography of these, of these uh, of behaviors and of these um, uh, polychaetes that are eating fish. Like they're just oh, God, fish I didn't even know that down. was... Or, or one that was thought to be a scavenger. Like there's a video of it just catching and eating a crab and just like swallowing. Well, the, there's the that crab. then, not, yeah. <laughs> not a scavenger. Yeah, no, definitely, definitely not entirely. <laughs> it may scavenge yeah. some. But like all these behaviors, you know, not only the name, but like the behaviors of things that... You know, most of the people that worked with, uh, you know, taxonomists over history, like you d- dealt in preserved specimens. Somebody go yeah. on a big long trip, and and then they brought back their collections, and the taxonomists would work through the IDing of them. Um, but these days, like with, uh, you know, I, I know some people have reservations about you know experiencing versus photographing. You have the you know the people that are taking pictures of the Mona Lisa in the Louvre, and you're like, that seems a little silly, you know. Like someone's done that before. Yeah, taking a photo of the Mona Lisa. Right. Exactly. It's like it's like you go to these famous museums, and you should be experiencing it there. And so there's this mediation of of like everybody's doing their digital photo thing. And so, like, I get that, but also the, it's such a powerful tool for for being able to spend more time in a in a non destructive way. You know, like, yeah. 
that you can see it, you can document these behaviors, you can share those widely, and you can revisit it yourself. And, and like I said, for me, that's been a way of kind of revisiting my story, like looking at that picture, thinking about what I saw, noticing what I didn't see at the time, and, and, and that then informs what I do when I go back out the next yeah. time, you know. No, I hear you, and I love that this has become the theme of our, our conversation, is the, the how little we know, and the value of of having a sense of place and your your position within it and i do think it is a an evolution of of where the most valuable thing is for people to simply enjoy being in in nature and to sit on a beach and and to be quiet and slowly what happens or actually very quickly what happens is you start moving the noticing the movement on the beach, the barnacles feeding, the crabs moving around. Something I love doing with kids, where it's a solitary spot exercise. Go claim your own spot. I still need to be able to see you, and that their world suddenly they own the knowledge and what did you know that there's crabs here? Yeah, I did. Yeah, but <laughs> it's important that you do. But that evolution then of of there not being output associated with something initially, and then whatever trajectory like clearly you and I and whatever rabbit hole or evolution we've gone into, we're at one end of it, but to simply be and let it fill you up and not have output associated with it uh, is also beyond words and how valuable that is. You, you reminded me of, uh, um, you, you know, just going out on the beach and seeing those things. I've, I've noticed, I guess it's probably been a while that I've noticed, but I go down at low tide and if you listen, you hear the yeah. little crackling of, I think it's, I think it's ma- ma- uh, barnacles and, and snails and things just kind of closing up a little tighter and little bubbles popping or something. I'm not exactly sure what it is, but there's this little... It's a whole concert of, yeah, of things. Yeah, very dealing subtle, with low tide. Uh, quietish kind of crackling popping going on um and i was am reminded of there's a, a fellow named gordon hempton uh who's a an audio he's, he's kind of became well known somewhat for the the square inch of silence or something that in um he, his search was quest was for these silent places and and what he meant by silence was the complete absence of human anthropogenic noise, noise right? yeah. Yeah. yeah and so he was finding that that is pretty rare and i think well i i know places i can go that i won't hear any human noise for extended periods of time here but this is kind of remote you know he's he's working in kind of the lower 48 states but one thing that he said there that was really uh interesting to me and intriguing to me i was reminded of as you were sharing is is that he said when you're taught to listen what you're really taught to do is not listen you're taught to Uh focus like if we have focused vision versus our peripheral vision you know we are taught when, when you're told to listen in school, what you're really being told is exclude everything but my voice. You know, listen Eek, to yeah, me only so true. before you even know what I'm saying. So you're not yeah. really listening. You're preemptively filtering everything but, but this. And, and he said, you know, he likes to invite people to actually listen expansively, to hear without judgment what's coming in initially, and then choose what to focus on. But unless you're doing that, you're not really listening in that in that full way. Yeah. You're not. You're not. You know, it's it's this very focused and narrow, filtered thing, and so it's kind of that experience of just going out there and being open yeah, to exactly. whatever yeah. sort of shows up in your eyeballs, or you know, because we we do tend to be very focused on what we're reading, or and that's a powerful thing to look at, but also to see, you know, the movement or the things that are or just the expansiveness. And all of it, like when we just slow down, and and again, this may not be as applicable for those living in a remote area like this, even though I suspect that 
there might be many listening who are in a state of overwhelm as well. But indeed, just to position yourself beside a tree or on a rock near near the ocean, and the the flood of sensory input, and to me, it feels like I I melt into it. I'm no longer and 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 whether that's humility or connectedness or some delicious cocktail of those things, it's not about what's going on in my head anymore or output or overwhelm. It's just being part of being part of the environment and the life around me. Yeah. Yeah. It is, uh, you know, one of the exercises I've heard is like, listen for the quietest sound in each of four directions, you know, one at a time and like close your eyes and just listen for the quietest sound and then try to listen to all four directions at the same time. And, you know, you can't really think if you're doing that because um, you're, you have to pay attention to, you know, yeah. those quietest sounds in the furthest distance. And th- that is an exercise for just kind of coming to presence in place. Yeah. Um, and that it's, uh, you know, over time, if you practice that and you do that and you do that with your vision, you know, not just focusing on things, but kind of going expansive and softer mm-hmm. and seeing the movement and, and just the, just the, the, you know, the lightest brush of wind because our eyes are phenomenally sensitive to movement. That's why I suppose when you're in the water, those, those fish that are disappearing <laughs> in the static photo become a little easier to yeah. see just because even a little bit of motion will, will catch our attention. And then the smells, you know, the richness of smells you mentioned that the, just the smell of the ocean and I, and the trees and the, and like a warm day in a bay, in a calm bay in the summer, you know, you can smell the cedars and the spruces, the, the oils volatile, volatilizing and and just that smell or the smell of low tide here you know i imagine it's similar there you know the oh i I love it it though like it even we even with a what was it a three-day absence yeah so from from home northeastern Mm. vancouver island to the big city do some big city things get on plane land in sitka and last night it hit me like oh like and it's 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 to the point where i can feel the the physical response to mm. that like okay this feels better i smell the ocean and day to day life when i'm at home i don't realize it cuz it's there all the time which i love i'm immersed constantly in this smell where only its absence will remind me that it's there yeah well, we've spoken for an hour, and, and so I just wanted to let you, if you have anything that you'd like to say wrapping up here. Uh, no, I have, uh, thank you uh, for the chance to chat with you. And I love that I've learned things as well, uh, most certainly uh, being the, the inviting people to look at birds in their backyard. And how wonderful to talk to somebody who clearly has the same... <laughs> has, has the same... Yeah, sense of connectedness and the importance of it all. Well, thank you. Yeah, and um, yeah, folks can check out your website, Marine Detective, or what was the name of the organization? Both would be great. Marine Detective and then the Marine Education and Research Society. Marine Education and Research Society. All right, great. Well, thank you. You've been listening to a conversation I recorded with Jackie Hildrain, also known as the Marine Detective on Facebook and other social media. She visited with me in 2019 when she was here as the keynote speaker for WhaleFest. I want to thank her again for taking some time to visit with me, and thank you for joining me here on the Sitka Nature Show this week. As always, I'd love to hear what you're seeing out there. Please feel free to send me an email, sitkanature at gmail.com, or get on Facebook and like the Sitka Nature page there. Until next time, this has been Matt on the Sitka Nature Show, KCAW, Sitka.